0: I could stay here forever.
1: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app
0: or visit carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If you've listened to the show recently, you'll know that I've chatted with a couple of people now who've come back from visits to China since the end of the zero-COVID policy and the onerous quarantines. Deborah Seligson actually was there from October to January and was in China during the about-face in in the policy, uh, and she talked about her experience there at some length. I also spoke with David Ownby after he'd spent three weeks in Beijing and Shanghai about his impressions. I've also talked, not on this podcast, but to many others who have spent time in China since then. Uh, Many of us who work on China haven't actually been there now for years. I haven't been since October of 2019, and though I was originally supposed to have been there last week for a conference in Tianjin coming back right around now, I had things to do on either side of that trip here in the States, and it was going to make the the trip very, very short and probably not worth the arduous travel on either end. But my dear friend Nason Mahbubi, a scholar at UPenn's Center for the Study of Contemporary China... And the Penn Law School just got back from a trip a couple of days ago, and he has kindly agreed to talk about well, how it went for him, his impressions, and all that. Nason, if you don't already know, hosts the fantastic Center for the Study of Contemporary China podcast. And while it's often kind of a long wait between shows, they are very much worth listening to and therefore worth the wait. All through the pandemic, Nason fought hard to keep channels of conversation open with scholars in China. And he held a number of online video conversations with Chinese academics in law and other fields like international relations on YouTube and on other social media. He's also convened fantastic conversations among China scholars like Mary Gallagher, Victor Shi, Alex Wong, Maggie Lewis, and many others on Twitter spaces. That gang of smart folks were called the Zheng Wei after the Central Political and Legal Affairs Commission. Nason Mahbubi, welcome back to Seneca, man. Thanks,
1: man. Uh, it is really, really a delight to be back on, and I'd love to have you introduce me to everything I speak at from here going on. That was really wonderful. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, sure. I'll just fly, fly me in. You Perfect. Know, especially if it's in China. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's start with something obvious, perhaps to somebody like me who's also itching to get back, but perhaps not so obvious to all the listeners. Why were you so eager to get back to China?
1: So you know, I have uh, been a scholar of Chinese law. And in particular, Chinese administrative law for a long time, for a few decades. And I think a lot of my strength as a scholar, a lot of my insights are derived from having spent a lot of time on the ground in China, cultivating uh, long-term relationships that are really meaningful to me and also have been uh, really productive sources of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the last couple of years, uh, not being able to go was really difficult. Yeah, I felt as if I was deprived of a certain kind of oxygen that I've relied on for a long time. So it was, I think, really essential for me as a scholar to go back to talk to my longtime friends and interlocutors. But beyond that, I think that given the nature of the spiraling US-China relationship, it has occurred to me in recent years that one contributing factor, not the main factor, but a contributing factor has been the degree to which we have been separated. We've been unable to travel back and forth. And that has, I think, contributed a lot to a lot of the downturn in relations. It's not the only factor, but it is a contributing factor. And so beyond any intrinsic benefit to me as an individual scholar, I think it was really important to me to kind of model that we can get back to the kinds of exchanges that have been so important in the relationship for the last forty years, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And like I said, during that period of oxygen deprivation, you were you were still trying. You had a lifeline. And I think that's it's really important. You did these two YouTube based initiatives. One was with Chen Dingding and focused on US China relations. The other was with the Beida legal scholar Shenkwe. Can you tell us more about those two ideas and and some of the the difficulties that you might have encountered in 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 creating this?
1: Sure, of course. And you know, of course, I think it's important to emphasize something that all of us know from the pandemic, which is that you can kind of make certain efforts to make up for the loss of in-person exchange through virtual modalities, but especially once you get back to in-person exchange, you really do see how much you missed yeah, yeah. by simply relying on the virtual. But at the height of the pandemic, when really there was very little way to have those kinds of conversations, um, first, I worked with uh, Peggy University Law Professor Shen Kuei, a dear friend of mine, to convene these uh, occasional meetings over Zoom. Um, those were not recorded. They were uh, you know, essentially private meetings, Um, But I think productive and at least making sure that some degree of connectivity was maintained between, um, you know, similarly situated scholars in the U.S. and China. Uh, But then uh, more publicly was my collaboration with Chen Ding Ding, which we turned into something that we kind of called like a TV show, Uh, you know, tongue in cheek a bit. But, you know, we recorded on Zoom and then we put these videos on YouTube. We tried to pick topics that were of real importance in the U.S.-China debates, and we would pick some Chinese scholars, some American scholars. uh, And we wanted to model that it was still possible to do public recorded conversations about difficult topics between the two sides. There wasn't a lot of, let's say, easiness to it. You know, doing something like that does take a lot of effort. But we did manage to pull off six episodes, and I think we were both quite proud of that. One note that I want to mention about that is that I have had this collaboration with Chen Ding Ding now over about two years. I had never met him in person. So on this trip to Beijing was the first time I actually got to meet him in person. (laughs) And uh, it so happened that a few of uh, our friends, our mutual friends like Depp Selkson and Graham Webster were in town. So we were able to convene in Chen Ding Ding's new offices in Beijing, something like uh, a real U.S.-China dialogue between uh, myself, Graham, and Deb, and then on the other side, Chen Ding Ding and some Chinese scholars. We think it's one of the very first, if not the first, in-person scholarly exchange uh, since the pandemic. And so we were very proud of that. And it built on the YouTube show that we did together.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll ask you to you know to talk a little bit about what, what came out of that and what you, what you talked about and what some of the attitudes were. But uh, first, let's get you actually to China. Uh, what was your itinerary while you were there? And what were the activities that actually brought you there? So
1: I was formally visiting at Peking University Law School, uh, which is a place that I've had really strong and deep connections for uh, decades now. Um, I went into the trip not sure how much I was going to do my usual routine of traveling to lots of different cities. Uh, it's been almost four years since I've been there. So I, I was a little bit worried about how much I could get back into the swing of things. But it turned out that, you know, after a couple of days, I felt fairly comfortable. And even within the contours of a relatively short visit, I was able to set up a trip to Shanghai to also visit at Shanghai University's uh, law school, Shanghai Jiao Tong University Law School, and give a a lecture there. Um, Beyond that, in both cities, in both Beijing and Shanghai, I'd say that my overall itinerary was mostly similar to that that I've had in the past, which is connecting with uh, different people within the Chinese legal community in particular who I've been talking to about shared research for for years now, decades really. But because of the downturn in relations and uh, I guess my growing voice on U.S.-China relations more generally for this trip in particular was the first time that I had quite a bit of uh, sort of U.S.-China relations discussion as well, including conversations with the IR scholars at places like Peking University and Tsinghua University who are often part of those dialogues. So this was sort of a a dual uh, mission on on my part, both to do the kinds of dialogues that I've always done that have to do with Chinese law and Chinese administrative law, but also to tap in more robustly into the US-China relations discussion. One note I'll mention here is that you know, in some ways, I don't want to make this seem as if they were completely separate conversations, because even my friends in the Chinese legal community are very interested now to talk about U.S.-China relations, given yeah. the ways in which that impacts their landscape as well. So the U.S.-China relations discussion really pervaded throughout, even on the things that were more kind of my traditional research focus.
0: So before we plunge into a discussion of those actual conversations and what came out of them, I want to ask you, what did Beijing feel like? I keep hearing that just even visually, the city's different than it was pre-pandemic, more sanitized, more orderly, but you know, with much more obvious surveillance, as some people have told me, but, you know, overall, a, a very different vibe. As somebody like you who's seen the city across different decades, you know, multiple decades now, what was your sense? How would you characterize the changes that you that you saw?
1: Yeah, you know, so, you know, over the course of the conversation, um, I'm sure we'll get to some of the maybe more negative things that I perceived on my trip. But it, just in terms of the everyday life, in terms of kind of, you know, uh, what was the atmosphere like? What was the 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 sky like? What was my ability to get around like? I have to say I was pleasantly surprised by how much I was able to kind of get back to the way that I was comfortable with Beijing before and and appreciate that it is a lot cleaner that you know the sky was blue pretty much every day that I was there. Um a lot of things uh, have been, you know, like, for example, Peking University for years when I would visit, there were all these construction projects throughout the campus. All of that's been completed over the course of the pandemic. The campus is absolutely beautiful. So, you know, again, I do want to get to some things that I thought were more negative um, that I perceived during the trip. But in terms of just this, you know, quality of life, um, it was really pleasant. It was really pleasant. And it did take very long to get back into the swing of things. I think mostly for those of us who haven't been around for a few years, what we have to get used to is that no one uses cash anymore. That right. everything is, you know, mobile payments and things like that. Uh, once you get used to that, you know, you really do start to feel like for those of us like yourself and myself who have been there a lot for many years, you really do start to feel like you're back in a place that you know quite well.
0: Oh good. That's that's really comforting. And payments, you were able to? Were you able to link an American bank account, or did you still have your?
1: Yeah, it's funny. This is this issue is one that everybody is focused on. You know, so any scholar I know who's going, uh, everyone is thinking about this issue. And I think by now the word has gone forth that uh, AliPay, uh, in particular, has allowed uh, the easy linking of foreign credit cards. And while I was there, WeChat Pay announced that they were going to do the same thing. So you yeah. know this this you know it's a sort of a funny issue to talk about, but it had been something that made it very difficult for foreigners to kind of get around in China if they didn't have a Chinese bank account, which I don't have. And so you know it's an ordinary life thing that um, makes a big difference in the ability of foreigners to get around. And I think the bigger point to emphasize here is that there haven't been a lot of foreigners in recent years. This was a theme that came up a lot in a lot of conversations that. It's noticeable that you don't have the same level of students. You don't have the same level of, you know, business people or tourists. Um, a lot of the people who lived in Beijing, and particular that I was there, um, had left, and so there was this palpable sense that there weren't many foreigners around. And you often heard that people were saying, you know, it would be better for more foreigners to come back. Well, if you want foreigners to come back, life can't be really difficult for them to manage everyday life, and so. Something as small as this mobile payments issue really does mean a lot in terms of the ability of foreigners to, you know, basically get around when they're in China.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're all hearing about a much tighter, constricted space for conversations. Uh, Many people have told me anecdotally about the reticence of many of their ordinarily quite open, quite fearless interlocutors, uh, their reticence to say anything that they think might get them kind of, you know, into trouble. Did you sense much of that?
1: So I I very much sensed that um, in the last few years, uh, there has been a tightening of political space. Um, The shadows of that were very clear to me. Mm. They weren't manifested in the reticence of my longtime friends and interlocutors to talk to me. Um, Partly, I think that is based on the fact that I have really deep relationships going back decades, and people know me well. They trust me. So I wouldn't say that people were reticent to talk to me directly, but I could still perceive the shadows. And um, that's a concern. That's a concern, I think, for people within China who are hoping that you know China can become a more fair, a more just, a more open society. That constricting space is, is, uh, is very, very troubling. I like to think that getting people like ourselves back to China may play some small role in helping to open things up a little bit. Lots of different types of examples I could give of that, but even just having kinds of conferences between Chinese and international participants has some kind of pressure effect back on that political space. I've known as an optimist, and so maybe that is a optimistic take, but it is part of why I thought being there mattered in some broader sense, beyond just my own particular research, that I was giving some kind of chance for people to think about the the nature of the political space they were within and whether or not there would be some ways to push back against the new boundaries.
0: Yeah. So the issues that, that people were, you know, tiptoeing around Xi Jinping himself, his norm breaking third term um, the canonization of Xi Jinping thought maybe The restructuring that's taken place since the 20th Party Congress of the relationship between the party and the state. Uh, What else? The Ukraine War, probably. Sure. Uh,
1: uh, All of those. All of those, I think, also um, you you might want to throw in into that list, even though in some ways people were speaking even with less caution about it, is the economy. I think that's something that was very clear. Yeah. That the economy is not doing great and that has become noticeable uh, throughout. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic is now a politically sensitive topic as well. I think because there's so much uh, recognition that maybe the last year uh, of the pandemic response um, wasted some time and that the way in which the COVID controls came down was messy, um, that's sort of a sensitive topic as well. You know,
0: So, Mason, I wanted to talk about that last point, about the COVID-19 pandemic, which you know, was so important, and it, it, it's, it's, it's really on very much on people's minds. Uh, David Owenby talked about how many people were sort of shell-shocked. You know, they kind of were in a state of PTSD over, over it. But um, from conversations you've had with people in the administrative law community, how is what's their sense of how the administration's handling of the pandemic has affected the Chinese public's trust in their legal and administrative systems? And then maybe also, how has the community itself, that legal community, its own trust in the leadership been affected?
1: Sure. You know, and before I speak specifically about the administrative law dimension, I want to pick up on the point you mentioned um, that you uh, referenced your conversation with David Ownby, you know, the PTSD, uh, the place where that was clearest to me was Shanghai, Um Wow. Oh yeah, they like, had it they had they it bad. really had it bad and I think we all for those of us who are watching it from abroad, we had obviously a sense of that. but then when you talk to people who live through it and they want to tell you their stories, wow, like that was very, very traumatic for people to live through and the, and the PTSD is is very clear um, in terms of the administrative law community, you know, I actually talked with uh, your colleague close collaborator Jeremy. Gold Corps, Jin Yu Me, right? Uh, uh-huh. About a year ago, um, in the interview series that he does for the China Project, and we talked. He especially reached out to me at that time because there were some people in the administrative law community who had written some commentaries recently about some of the illegalities that they perceived in some of the pandemic response at that point. And so we had a, a nice conversation about that. And you know, to kind of recap it a little bit, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when uh, it was I think, a little bit more political space to critique the local government response in Wuhan. A number of members of the administrative law community and the legal reform community more generally had written commentaries pointing out how the uh, local authorities' response did not accord with the legal framework that had been set up in the aftermath of SARS. And There was quite a lot of commentary of that nature. Um, As China's pandemic response moved forward, that kind of commentary had less space. But what was really interesting for me, um, and in some ways hardening, was that at the height of things like the Shanghai lockdown um, back in April of last year, there were still people in the administrative law community, including friends of mine, who were willing to write publicly um, their critiques of uh, some of the aspects of those uh, you know, very strong responses, including things like taking keys away from people and locking them in their homes and forcing them to do nucleic acid tests. And I sort of cited that in my conversation with Jeremy last year as an example of how even within this much more tight political space, there was still room for people who wanted to take up whatever space they thought was still there to make fairly technical points that were referencing particular legal standards, but still critiquing aspects sure. of the government's response. And I think that goes back to when you were asking me earlier about political space, you know, I've. I've thought a lot about this because just about every conversation I had with people there was about this notion of space. And it really, you know, space is, is a dynamic concept and it depends on who you are. Some people are more sensitive. So sure. if someone is more sensitive than someone else, then maybe they can't say something, but someone else who's not as sensitive can say something. Um, how you craft it, uh, whether you craft it as, you know, an incrementalist point or a maximalist point matters. Um, the boundaries are not as clear as they used to be. And so some people may just feel like, you know what, I'm just not even going to bother with risking anything. Um, And of course, I don't think it's going to be any surprise for you here that the people I respect the most, who I really admire in a very deep sense, are the people, including in the admissive law community, who say, okay, I think this is the space I can use. These are the points I can make. If there's some trouble with it, I'll find out but it's probably not going to get me in serious trouble, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I have lots of examples of that, and those people are really heroes to me.
0: A year on, have they had to pay any price? Have there been repercussions politically, professionally?
1: I think there's such a wide range of different kinds of repercussions that it really depends on what you qualify as a repercussion. So for some people who maybe publish some things, maybe there was a conversation somewhere. Is that Really, a repercussion, or is that well within the acceptable range of cost? You know, that's a personal decision. Um, But of the people that I've listed, at least I can say uh, for a fact that none of them um, are in prison. You know, none of them are fired. Uh, They all still operate within the system, maybe with some greater degree of scrutiny than before, but still within an acceptable range. And so, them taking the chances that they take to play that role. Um, and to have that kind of voice in that system I think is incredibly admirable.
0: That's a very useful and relevant tangent, but let's get back to this 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 question that I asked you about how it's affected trust in the legal and admi- sure. administrative systems. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, whether it's the pandemic per se or just the broader dynamics, um, there is clearly some erosion. Mm-hmm. Of trust in in the government and um, its approaches in general. Uh, I don't know that I could tease out the the pandemic part of it outside of all the other things, including you know of most relevance to the legal community. You know, like rolling back certain kinds of legal reforms. You know, one of the things that a lot of us are noticing right now, both uh, outside of China and in China, is that. Lots of aspects of the legal reform program, the court reform program that was associated with the prior Supreme People's Court President Joe Chiang are being rolled back right now, hmm. including the publication of cases online. Right. So a right. lot of those cases have been taken down.
0: You might recall that I did a big uh, interview with Rachel Stern and with uh, other legal scholars about that. And yeah, that's really that's really a pity.
1: Yeah. That was a great episode. Also with Ben Liebman um, and Ben, ben Lieben, and right. Rachel have been working a lot with the database of these cases um, that were really remarkably open uh, for the last few years. You know, um, Ben uh, is, uh, I think it's fine to say, is currently in China um, talking to colleagues. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of his research is met with great interest. Um, But it could be that if he's going to say empirical things about the Chinese legal system, it'll be based on cases that were available until recently, (laughs) but not cases going forward because um, they, they aren't online. And, you know, part of that, uh, I think, is the the fact that they are taking the cases offline is maybe because of reasons that we could put a charitable gloss on, you know, reasons like maybe they were concerned about certain private information in the cases, or maybe some of the, the legal judgments were incorrect. But it does seem like part of what drove that decision was that they noticed all these foreigners were looking at the cases and maybe telling hmm. the story about the Chinese court system that wasn't exactly what the authorities wanted to hear. Um, and that's troubling. You know, that's, that's very troubling and it, consistent with lots of other things we're saying about restrictions on information. Um, all of that is to say, to go back to your essential earlier question, um, yes, there is a decline in trust among the sort of intellectuals who look at the legal system. And I think part of that is rooted in the pandemic, of course, but a lot of that is rooted in broader things. Including things that are specific to the legal system,
0: Nason, mm-hmm. You mentioned that pretty much every conversation that you had kept circling around the issue of U.S.-China relations, uh, even though you know that's not really your wheelhouse. But now it has sort of become your wheelhouse. Uh, let me let me ask first: What were the, the views of your colleagues about this general shift in public opinion in the U.S. toward China over the past few years? How has it affected their work, their perspectives? What, what do they, they chalk it up to? I mean, these are a lot of often quite self-critical liberal intellectuals that you're talking about. So I imagine that, that they see some of the blame as, as resting in Chinese behavior. I wonder if that has shifted. I wonder if they see the U.S. you know sort of having more culpability in the downturn in relations just in, in, in recent years.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It came up, I think, just about in every conversation. It was very hard for it not to. Let me start with one anecdote, which as soon as this conversation happened, it just occurred to me it was something that I would want to talk about publicly. You know, I was uh, with one friend uh, who um, is a very well-trained legal scholar uh, and has done extensive training in the United States, um, who is very, very clearly part of like the liberal intelligentsia who has all sorts of concerns about, you know, his own government and things that they're doing, including the rise of sort of ideological sort of uh, valence within legal education. But as we talked about U.S.-China relations in particular, it was clear to me that he also felt that, you know, the U.S. was doing things that um, seemed unfair and that were affecting, um, you know, the prospects for flourishing in China in ways that he did not like. And so he had a sentence to me that was really etched my memory. He said, Nason, if you guys start losing people like me, you're in a lot of trouble. And wow. I thought that was like I really that really landed with me because I think so much of our discussion about sort of China here in the US has sort of fallen into um, unfortunately, a kind of a trope of thinking of China as kind of a monolithic. Um, uh, entity or of thinking of China as sort of this distinct separation between the CCP, which we sort of, you know, put all these negative feelings on, and then the Chinese people, right? So these are sort of ways that our discourse here has been fumbling towards trying to make sense of a really complex and nuanced picture. I feel like we don't really have almost capacity in our discourse to take into account someone like the person I just mentioned, who, again, is as critical, if not more critical than me, because he lives it every day, of aspects of the Chinese system, and at the very same time is feeling alienated by the rhetoric he hears from the U.S. about China and some of the steps that U.S. is taking to limit flourishing in China. I really wish we could do better in our own discourse here to understand that, to understand that duality in the perspectives of um of you know Chinese intellectuals and Chinese liberal intelligentsia and maybe Chinese people more broadly um and then to maybe try to have a rhetoric better account for that reality on the ground
0: that is that's a gut punch and it's an amazing anecdote it also tallies very much with what i am hearing from a lot of my my friends in china who are again i mean a lot of, whether they're just sort of rock and rollers or whether they're they're scholars they feel very much the same. I mean, their sympathies toward the United States, their very natural political sympathies toward the United States, have been wearing thin uh, because of this. Yeah, but you know, let me let me let me shift to you know even more recent months. You just got back, so in your opinion, have the Biden administration's recent efforts to thaw U.S.-China relations been well received by your Chinese colleagues? Uh, and if not, what kinds of Reservations or concerns might they have expressed?
1: You know, I was there uh, about a week before Secretary Blinken arrived. And so a lot of the conversation in the week leading Mm -hmm. up to Secretary Blinken's visit was about, um, you know, how would that visit go and would it be successful? And, you know, a metric that everyone liked to joke about was whether or not uh, he would get to meet with Xi Jinping. And then if he did meet with Xi Jinping, um, how that would be portrayed in the press? Like, would there be a photo, or would there just be a couple of lines um, in a Xinhua report? Um, at the time of the visit, it sort of seemed like it went well, and a number of the sort of IR specialists that I was talking to uh, really seemed almost taken aback by how well the meeting had gone. Um, and we saw, you know, that the the rhetoric in both readouts um, seemed quite positive, positive. and there was this mm-hmm. emphasis mm-hmm. on the resumption of people-to-people exchange in both readouts, which I was very happy to see because that's been the main issue that I've been kind of harping on in, in recent years. Um, I think over the course of my visit there, there was also an incident where President Biden um, said something offhand at a fundraiser about he, how Xi Jinping was a dictator. Um, and, you know, I guess that you can read that a little in different ways that, you know, he was maybe not making that a direct point, but it was a it was sort of a side point.
0: Yeah, yeah, it wasn't a direct point. I mean, yeah,
1: it was, it was. It was. It was. It was. It was something that came up after that. The
0: broader context was sort of a dismissal of the balloon thing. I mean, it was trying to. The broader context was he was trying to take deflate some of the hype from the the balloon incident. And, and so here,
1: and, let me say something about that because I think you know I have I think in my comments so far, sort of made it seem one sided that I that I put all the blame on the U.S. side. I actually think a lot of the sort of problems are based on. Things that both sides are doing, um, and the perspectives of the Chinese intellectuals or liberal intelligentsia that I'm, that I'm talking to are not always ones that I totally agree with. And and so, for example, the uh, meaning of the comment was one that I kind of tried to explain as to the extent that people had concerns about it. I tried to explain the same way as you're doing. But then, the, to the extent that the balloon came up, you know, a general point that sometimes would come up would be that oh, the U.S. government. You know, the nefarious U.S. government played up the balloon incident to harm U.S.-China relations. And I would always push back in those conversations and say, well, listen, if, you know, if this big American balloon showed up in the skies of Hunan province and a bunch of Chinese farmers saw the balloon, it would be a big problem for China, too. And so I, I sort of felt like um, as much as I understood some of the concerns that people were stating about maybe things that U.S. had done, it was important to kind of push back a little bit as well and point out you know, that it isn't a one-sided thing. And and just to kind of add a kind of an important valence to all of this, that's the advantage of in-person exchange. That's what you can do when you're on the ground. You that's can right. actually have those conversations. You can listen to critiques that people have. You can think about that. And then you can come back with your own counters. That's what we've been missing for the last few years. And I think so much of the fraught nature of the relationship is because so many of those conversations, which happened so much across all these different dimensions in all these prior years and decades, were missing for the last four years.
0: Amen, amen. And you have been, you know, you've been preaching this this, this message. Uh, you wrote uh, your intervention in in one of those China file conversations uh, about the future of China studies in the U.S. Uh, that you wrote during the pandemic. You really hit that note really really well. You emphasize the importance of, of on the ground research and that kind of exchange. So, what do you? Well, how, how does? What's your prognosis of the future of such exchanges and you know that ability to, to to have our scholars on one another's ground in light of the pandemic and and escalating political tensions? Because you know, look, given the the complexities of the, I mean, I'm speaking very euphemistically here of both you know the domestic Chinese and and American political landscapes look neither of us has exactly covered ourselves in glory in the way that we treat the other side and we've not made the scholars from the other side feel exactly welcome and appreciated of late right i mean for for every you know difficulty that we have in you know uh, getting visas and stuff like that to china i i don't envy chinese scholars coming to the u.s being subjected to Strip searches, having their you know social media port over, uh, and 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 then you know possibly worse once in in the U.S. Yeah, what's going on? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I think the first point to emphasize is that um, scholars on both sides, on both the U.S. and the Chinese side, have an opportunity now to get exchanges restarted, both because the COVID controls have been uh, relaxed lifted in China. And because the top leadership of both countries, um, and most recently very clearly expressed in the readouts after the Blinken visit, on both sides have emphasized the resumption of people to people exchange and especially scholarly exchange. So we have an opportunity that we can push through with. On both sides, there are concerns about visa issues, about being harassed at the border, about what kind of experience they might have in the other country. Um, we could have a conversation that descends into, these are the things that have happened to scholars from our side, and these are the things that have happened to scholars on the other side. Um, I, I think it would be best if instead of kind of getting locked in a tit-for-tat cycle on those issues, um, we really tried to speak to both governments about how they really do mean what they say about the resumption of scholarly exchange, then they have to knock it out um, in both senses. Um, and I say that as clearly to the Chinese government as to the US government, which has done a lot of uh, damaging um, uh, questioning of really prominent Chinese scholars in recent years. Um, and that has, you know, circulated within the Chinese scholarly community yeah. just as much as the stories of American scholars um, having faced similar things has circulated among our scholarly community. At the end of the day, in both countries, there is uh, a rising security apparatus, which is uh, putting pressure on the ability of us to do this kind of work. And I think on both sides, we have to try our best to push back against it. I think probably here in the States, we have a little bit more ability to push back against ours. But I think ideally, both sides are pushing back. Um, You know, oftentimes, I think like the hawks. In China against the US and the Hawks in the US against China, they have no better friend than each other because they always kind of play off of the things that they see and the way that they see the world. Whereas those of us who are more moderate on both sides and especially scholars, we can think about our common interest and and try to kind of create a virtuous cycle out of that. Um, That's not to say that any of this is easy. And especially when we talk about scholarly exchange, it's going to put a lot of pressure on universities to um, think about you know, what kind of risks they're willing to take. Um, but if we believe in this, if we believe that the scholarly exchange is important and is important both intrinsically and for the relationship more broadly, we're going to have to be bold. Like This is the time to be bold um, and try to get something that has been really important for a really long time started again.
0: One piece of rather low-hanging fruit, I would think, is one of the gigantic impediments to travel in either direction is just the damn cost, of air travel right now. I mean, I understand, right, you know, the Ukraine war, which I, I do want to ask you about, but the Ukraine war has made it so, you know, we can't fly over the top. That Delta flight from Detroit to Beijing that I used to love. Nope. The one from the UA flight from Newark over the top. Nope. Now, I mean, I would have had to fly from, you know, here to Newark and then Newark to Frankfurt and then Frankfurt to Beijing. And it was like, after, you know, 30 hours all total. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I, you know, Secretary Blinken talked about that. I mean, it was—I can't remember whose readout it was in, but uh, it uh, was—you know—there was mention of working to, you know, increase the number of of routes and uh, to bring the cost of travel down. That would be fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously, we are all hoping that the direct flights can come back and the cost can get back to what we were used to. Um, You know, this is a real issue. Not just in terms of your personal calculations or my personal calculations, but if you think about like these exchange programs, you know, like Schwarzman College in Beijing or the Yenching Academy at Peking University, um, if they're paying for their students to come over and those prices are double what they had sort of budgeted in their initial budget. That's just double. My right? God, like that that's be, yeah. a big problem for them. Um, yeah, yeah, So, you know, there's there's all sorts of ways in which this flights issue is is difficult. I understand that you know something that's come up in the dialogue between the two sides. As far as I know, and you probably know this too, um, the Chinese airlines are more ready uh, to kind of get those routes going, and some of the pushback is coming from U.S. airlines, which have to both think about the competitive disadvantage because they're not going to fly over Russia, and they have to think about where the the sort of demand side is going to be. I don't know how long that's going to take to resolve itself, but. Um, I will say that I am a very happy customer of Ajiana Airlines because even though it cost way more than I'm used to paying, and even more, it took a lot longer than it used to. They do serve the most delightful Korean food that I've ever had uh, a meal of that nature on a 13-hour flight to China. So I will say at least that one aspect was 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 <laughs> some small uh, sort of I don't know. Positive to otherwise, what is is a much more arduous journey than it used to be.
0: Oziana Airlines is not a sponsor. <laughs> no, of the not at all. They
1: may though. they may <laughs> not exist much longer because I think they're going to merge with KAL. So even if ah. this was a plug, it's a plug with a very uh, short time limit limit expiration. On it. Date, Limited yeah. expiration date.
0: <laughs> hey, so I did. I guess uh, the Ukraine war is is it something that came up in conversation because this is something very much on the minds of Americans as we look at China these days.
1: Oh, absolutely, and you know I think. um you know, among the liberal intellectuals who I'm spending most of my time talking to, uh, there is not a lot of uh, positive sentiment towards Putin or or Russia. And there is, I think, quite a lot of common sentiment with, you know, how you or I might think about the war. Um, Certainly the suffering of the Ukrainian people is something that uh, comes up a lot in conversation. I did ask around, I said, you know, you know, what do you think most people in China, you know, ordinary people uh, think about this, you know, is there more kind of common perspective with maybe the official rhetoric still that's coming out of China about Putin and the causes of the war? And generally, people did seem to suggest that maybe the wider landscape is still more probably pro-Putin, pro-Russia, skeptical of the West than the people I was talking to. But certainly among the people that I was talking to, it was very clear that we are all kind of thinking about this in similar ways sure you know I think what that means in terms of uh, Chinese uh, policy is is hard to say but I do think that one thing that we saw happen in the last few weeks and that was clearly being looked at carefully um, within Beijing was the you know aborted coup um, that does not make your partner with no limits seem like such a great bet um, and I'm sure that uh, there's, there's a lot of sort of thinking in Beijing about how to recalibrate um, based on that. I do, you know, this is not, you know, as you well know, this is not the area that I've, you know, the deepest scholarly insight. But it does seem to me that um, there may be an opening uh, on this particular issue for the U.S. and China to work together, um, especially as the you know bad bet that was made on Putin becomes more and more clear going forward. Of all the various kinds of issues where I think the U.S. and China can find some common cause, I like to think that this may be one of them, uh, more so than some other things that are more difficult.
0: Amen. Yeah, let's hope so. Nathan Machwubi, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and to tell us what you heard and what you saw on this latest trip. Uh, when are you planning on going back?
1: I'm hoping to go back as soon as I can. I, I may go back as soon as August for a trip that uh, Isa Ding, uh, who you know well as well, professor from Northwestern. University is is organizing a conference in, in Zhejiang University. And if not that, then probably in the fall sometime. But I'm very eager to go back and keep up the kinds of conversations that I was having um, with longtime friends who I already miss dearly being back in the States.
0: Isa was just in Asia. I mean, we, we were talking to her at that Schwartzman event, and she was in Ulaanbaatar.
1: <laughs> oh, that's right. We should just say, by the way, that we... Uh, we We were able to uh, see each other at least virtually during that time because we were uh, thanks to you, you invited me to be one of the judges for the Schwartzman College Capstone Program. Um, yeah, and I think just to put one point on that is that those kids are really smart. They're really smart, they're really talented, and um I hope that program uh, continues to flourish in the years ahead. I think it does really an important work of getting really smart, talented uh, kids from both the West and from other parts of the world and from China together. Um, in a really
0: beautiful space. I was i was frankly blown away by the quality of those presentations. I yeah. Was, they were so good. We had a really tough tough task to, to judge that. Anyway, um, let's move on to recommendations. First, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is part of the China Project. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the network or with the China Project more generally, then the very best thing you can do to help us keep going is to subscribe to Access from the China Project Access gets you, well, access to this show on Monday's East Coast time and, of course, our daily dispatch newsletter. You don't have to deal with a paywall uh, on all the great stories that we run on the website. So do your part, pitch in, help us out, become a member. All right, recommendations. Nason, what you got for us, man?
1: So I'm going to put in my bucket here a movie that I watched early on in um when I first started studying Chinese and studying China in the mid-90s, that just sort of captivated me at the time and that I come back to every so often um in following years, and that is the movie To Live, oh, yeah Um which of course is based on uh the novel um by, by the Yuhua. author yeah. Yuhua. Um I think our friend Michael Berry has translated the novel into English. I think that's right. Um and uh if, if that is right, um, one kudos to Michael Berry and two, you know, people could also read the novel, but that movie, um, you know, I think does such a good job of showing the complexity of the modern Chinese experience. Um, and that's really been the lodestar of the way that I've approached China and the now almost 30 years that I've been studying it, trying to understand that lots of things can be true at the same time. Lots of things are happening at the same time. And at the end of the day, anything that we want to analyze about China ideally will take all that complexity into account, as well as the basic humanity that exists um, you know, amongst all of us, but that is also reflected so deeply in a story like uh, To Live and in, in that movie. You know, that's something that I just really hope that all of our conversations that can sometimes feel like they're, you know, very much othering the uh, the the other side can maybe take more account of um, in the years ahead.
0: Plus it's got Goyo in it, and any movie with Goyo in it is worth watching. <laughs> hey, I, Yeah, no, it, Michael did translate... That that uh yeah. law novel to live, yeah. Good job, um, Michael. Kudos, yeah. to Michael. Yeah, kudos. You know, I actually Michael was in in the area not too long ago, and we spent a day just jamming. You know, he's a killer bass player, and so you know, I was a man drums, of many talents. You know, he's a killer, killer bass player. Anyway, um, I am going to make a slightly nepotistic recommendation here and suggest that you subscribe to my brother Jay's Substack. It's called The Status Guo I don't I don't get the pun, but uh it's <laughs> the status quo. He says quo, it's weird. I, I can't bring myself to pronounce my surname quo. I don't think I would say Wang if my surname were Wong. But anyway, it, I
1: gotta say that's a great name. The status, the status quo qu- is really come really on, good. It's,
0: it's 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 not exactly original. I mean people have been making that joke since I was a kid. But anyway. The the substack though is in, incredible. It's really, really good. It's also free. You can, you know, do a voluntary donation. Uh, but it's a very in-depth daily newsletter on American politics. It really kind of rides the line between, you know, mainstream Democrats and, and the progressive wing. But it's always very anchored in the pragmatic. And you like this, Nason because, you know, he, my brother was a, a lawyer. Uh, he's my you know, people. He, he, yeah, his your, your tribe, his with his legal training, his knowledge of, you know, of of American law and uh, the legislative process, he gets into the into the weeds a bit. Uh, it's pretty nitty gritty, but it's actually quite accessible. I think that's what. what um, as far as I can tell, most of the subscribers are sort of the the old members of Pantsuit Suit Nation, uh, but it's just fantastic. He writes on court decisions. On uh, he's got actually a whole series right now on this recent Supreme Court spate of of decisions. Anyway, the the Substack is at statusquo.substack.com. So uh, check it out. It's really, really good. I, I think his his writing, he's quite quite a good writer. So check it out. I, I mean, he's my brother, but hey. <laughs> anyway, Nason, man, thank you once again. What a, what a delight.
1: Thanks, Kaiser. It is always a delight to talk to you whether or not it's being recorded and for public dissemination, but this time it was, and I'm really grateful that you had me on the show.
0: Well, I'm glad you could make the time. Thank you so much, brother. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us out on the Twitters or on Facebook at at the China Proj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.